passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. God, we thank you for this incredible gift. God, we thank you that you speak through it today. That you teach us, you shape us, and you form us. And we ask that you would do that even now through your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a question. Uh, and that question is, how big is your God? How big is your God? Maybe a weird question for you to wrestle through, but it is a, a crucial question for us to answer. How big is your God? This isn't a, a question about actual size. It's, it's more a, a question about power and authority. Do you worship a God who is great and, and powerful, in control? Or do you worship a God that is timid? Small, caught off guard by the hard things in life. In his book, Your God is Too Small, J.B. Phillips argues that although many of us have the right theological understanding of who God is, the reality is our functional picture of God or how that influences our day-to-day life is strangely lacking. I know in my own life, I have a tendency to fit into this category from time to time. I know and recognize in my head all the right things. I know that God is the ruler of the universe, that he created everything, that he is the one who is in charge and and holds everything together by his sustaining power. But the reality is, functionally, that doesn't seem to have much of an influence on my day-to-day life at times. When I'm faced with hard times, I begin to wonder if God actually hears my prayers. When I pray for days on end and don't hear or see any fruit from that, I begin to wonder, is God really in charge? Maybe you find yourself in the same place. You find yourself in a place where you might, in Sunday morning uh, worship or in conversations with others, that you recognize that God is a big God, but then it doesn't have all that much influence or impact on your day-to-day life. Even if it does have an influence, it might not have as big of an influence as it should. That's you this morning, and I would guess that probably all of us fit into that category in one degree or another. Uh, Some good news for you. This morning's text is for you. If you were lucky enough to get a bulletin, you'll see that we are in a a series that we're beginning today looking at the book of Genesis. We're beginning this book. And I feel like if you're new to Crosswinds, this is really our sweet spot as a church. We are a church that, that loves God's word. We think that God's word has authority over us. And so the best way for us to, uh, to preach on Sunday mornings is to start a book of the Bible and go through it until we get to the end. And if you've been around Crosswinds for a while, you know that we can take a while to make it through some of these books. We spent 20 weeks going through Ephesians, which only has six chapters. Spent 19 weeks going through 1 Peter, which only has five chapters. 
I have no idea how long Genesis is going to be, but I will tell you that it has 50 chapters. There is a small chance that my son will actually have to finish this series for us. But, but in all seriousness, uh, I'm excited to dive into this book. I think that it is an incredible book for us, uh, that we can learn a great deal uh, about who God is, uh, that God is a great, wonderful, big God who is in charge of the entire universe. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several months, probably a year or so, as we're working our way through this book, both here in Spencer as well as at our Spirit Lake campus. But because we're going to spend so much time in this book, I think it's appropriate here at the beginning just to spend some time understanding Genesis as a whole and just looking at this book as a whole. So what do we know about Genesis. We're going to look at four things about Genesis just to help us get this thing into the proper context. So first, where is the book of Genesis located in the Bible? Anyone? It's the first book of the Bible. It is uh, what we consider to be a part of the law, okay? This is the first of five books of the Bible that are considered the law. And many of us are probably familiar with the law. It is a vital part of ancient Israel, uh, and it shows, uh, in Genesis, it really shows how God chose Israel to be his chosen people. How their relationship with God began. The rest of the law continues off of that and shows, okay, now that God has us as his people, how do we maintain that relationship with God? And so that's what Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, in large part, that's what they are looking at as books, This is a part of what we consider to be the law. Now, as Christians, we know that Christ has come to fulfill the law, and he came to do just that. But that doesn't mean that he came to abolish the law. In fact, Jesus says that very clearly in his earthly ministry. And just just a a small plug, I mentioned in a couple weeks, we're starting up our Crossman's University classes, and we're going to have an adult class that's going to look at how we, uh, how do we apply the law as Christians to our lives? We're going to be doing that in October. Before that, we're just going to be going through the book of Genesis and looking at how do we read the Bible as Christians, but especially the Old Testament. How do we read the Old Testament as Christians correctly? Just a, a shameless plug there. If you are interested, would love for you to join us uh, starting September 27th, 930, and we will be meeting over in the Activity Center. So we say that Genesis is a part of what we consider to be the law. But who wrote it? Many of us uh, know that the traditionally Jews and Christians have uh, stated that Moses is the author of Genesis, that he wrote the entire law, as a matter of fact. So he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis is actually a book that is anonymous. It doesn't c- claim to be written by anyone. But as we look at the rest of the Bible, especially Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, we see that Jesus claims that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Moses is the one who wrote these things down. Now, while we confess that, we also recognize that there was probably a later editor who came in and took what Moses wrote and gave it to us in the, uh, the form that we have it today. An example of this, Deuteronomy 34, is a passage that tells us about the death of Moses. No Christian believes that Moses wrote that passage about his own death. 
It was a, an example of someone else taking what Moses had written and then adding something to it and adding a little bit later addition to the book of Deuteronomy. And you see uh, examples of this in Genesis as well. So as Christians, we believe that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, but there was also someone who came along a little bit later and made a couple updates and, and changes to it. And, and you might be wondering, why on earth does all this matter? Why on earth do we care about this? And I think it's important for us because it helps us to understand the context of this book as a whole. Helps us to understand who the original audience, the original people who heard this book when it was first written, who they were and the context of life that they were in. Knowing that Moses was the one who wrote this book helps us to realize that the original audience was the people of Israel in the wilderness. And the fact that there was a later editor reminds us that the audience or the the people that are in view here in the book of Genesis uh, are the people of Israel throughout history. Now that doesn't mean at all that there's nothing for us as Christians here in the book of Genesis because there's a great deal uh, of truth for us. And, and, And frankly, we see in Christ the promises of Genesis fulfilled. It's just a, a good reminder for us as we begin this book to recognize that there is a very, very, very big gap between us and the original audience. We have to work at bridging that gap to understand the purpose of this book. So what is the purpose of this book? I think if we were to sum up the, the purpose of this book, it ultimately, uh, on the most basic level, it's, it's just the beginning of the story of God with humanity. It's the beginning of the story of God with humanity. It is, it is a book that, like the rest of the law, tells us about how God will keep his promises. That God is faithful to keep his promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, Israel. But even more than that, it doesn't just focus on Israel, but it says, because God is faithful to his promises to Israel, all nations will be blessed. All of creation, which is under the influence of the curse of sin, will be rescued through God's plan, through his faithfulness to the people of Israel. Every single story in the book of Genesis ultimately boils down to that, that God is faithful. That God will rescue us. That he will redeem his creation. So as we read this book, it's important for us to keep that in the back of our minds. Because ultimately, Genesis, it is about many things, but it is ultimately about grace. That's why we're calling this series Origins. Genesis is the origins of many things, but it is first and foremost the origins of God's wonderful plan to save humanity. That is the origins of God's grace for us as humanity. And as we begin this morning looking at Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the origins of that grace, even here in just two verses. But as we approach these verses, I just want to give us a word of caution as we begin. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Genesis 1, as you uh, probably know, is a pretty controversial passage to some people. Genesis 1, I'm just going to say what it's about right now, is primarily about God. 
Just like the rest of the Bible, Genesis 1 is first and foremost about God. It is not primarily a scientific treatise on how the world works. Now, there is historical truth in Genesis 1. Don't get me wrong on that. But it is not the primary focus. If we were to get only, if the only thing we were to get out of Genesis 1 was how God created the world, which again, very important for us as Christians to recognize. But if that's the only thing that we get out of Genesis 1, then we are largely missing the point because Genesis 1 is first and foremost reminding us that we have a big God, that we have a creative God, a God who is in charge, who rules and reigns, who speaks all life into existence. We must keep this as the focus as we approach this passage. That's why we started this morning by asking that question, how big is your God? Not just on a theological level, but on a practical level, on a day-to-day level. How big is your God? How big is the God that you worship? The reality is this is a God that cares deeply about you. This is a God who hears us when we pray, and he answers those prayers. This is a God who is present with us in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of darkness. God is with us. And that is what Genesis chapter 1 is primarily reminding us. Honestly, if we were to sum up Genesis chapter 1, I think it would be basically saying this, that God has given us creation as a signpost to point us to him. Creation is a signpost pointing us to God's faithfulness, to his love for us, to his greatness, to his majesty. That's what creation is primarily about. And as we explore this passage, that's what we're going to see over and over and over again. The creation is given to us as a signpost pointing us to God. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. As I mentioned, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. So please follow along as I read aloud here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Notice the first words here. Very, very familiar words. The first words of the entire Bible, in the beginning. The logical question is, well, in the beginning of what? And is this talking about the the beginning of everything? Is this talking about the beginning of of God? What existed before Genesis 1-1? This passage makes it clear that nothing existed before God himself. See, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, begins the story not of the beginning of God, because God has no beginning, but it begins the story of God's interaction with humanity, the beginning of creation. In a way, it's the beginning of the incredible story of God, of God, a story of loss and betrayal. It's a story of despair and evil, a story of good overcoming that evil, and eventually a story of God making everything right one day in the future. That's what we see here in the beginning. But we might be wondering, well, what, what exactly, uh, why exactly did God create everything? Why is there creation? And some people will answer that and say, well, God created it because he was lonely. They'll say, well, God created everything because he needed people for him to love. 
But that's not what the text is saying. That's not what the context of Scripture says. Uh, that God is self-sufficient. He is a God who needs no one else. We see uh, in the Bible very clearly that God exists as three persons, but one God. Existing in perfect fellowship. Perfect unity. Perfect companionship before creation even existed. Genesis 1.1 reminds us that God was perfectly happy with or without creation. Thank you very much. Instead, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is a reminder that God's love and grace are the result or, or are the purpose of creation, the reason for creation. God created everything because of his love and because of his grace. It's only an overflow of those two things. In the beginning. But notice what it says next. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a reminder that that God created every single thing that we see. That he is the one who is behind every single fiber of our being. Everything that we can touch, the things that we can't touch, all have their source in God. Now, there's a lot to these words, so let's go ahead and spend some time unpacking them. Uh, Really, three points that we're going to look at as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First, let's just talk about the size of creation. The size of of God's creation really points to God's power. You know, when I was little, I loved, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, You know, I'm a far cry from that, as you can see. Uh, I loved space. I still love space. I remember very vividly, every summer growing up, that my mom would take me to the library. And I would check out the exact same nine books every single summer. And every single one of those books was about a, single, a different planet in our solar system. That's what I would do every single su- summer. And now some of you are counting and you say, well, there are only eight planets. Well, this was back when Pluto was a planet. So uh, I'm, I'm still operating under that assumption that that is a planet for us. And, and I didn't make that connection between why I liked reading so much about space but, but it eventually dawned on me. It's because space is, is so big and so mysterious. Let me just uh, to share a couple things about our universe. I want you to imagine that our solar system, where Earth is, is a football field. Okay, so we're going to shrink the entire solar system down to a football field. This is to talk about the size of, our cre- of God's creation, rather. The, on this scale, the sun which is the largest object in our solar system, is the size of a dime lying on one of the goal lines. If the earth were shrunk down to that size, it would be the size of a grain of sand lying on the two-yard line. And the rest of the solar system would expand another 80 yards to the other side of the football field. Our solar system is vast. No wonder it took decades for us to reach Pluto. 
We live in a very big solar system, but the reality is our solar system is a very, very small part of the galaxy that we live in, in the Milky Way galaxy. Our closest galactic neighbor, the Andromeda galaxy, uh, just a short 2.2 million light years away from us. If you wanted to visit Andromeda, that means all you have to do is travel at the speed of light, which is about uh, 670 miles an hour. All you have to do is that for about 2.2 million years, and then you'll arrive there. Let's go ahead and show a picture of uh, Andromeda from Earth. It's circled up there. That's what Andromeda looks like from the, from the Earth. Now, let's go ahead and zoom in on that, Luke. Um, this is what Andromeda looks like from the Hubble telescope. Okay, very, very beautiful galaxy. Uh, honestly, uh, our galaxy probably looks quite a bit like this as well. And last January, NASA released a photo of uh, uh, just a portion of Andromeda. And that's where this, uh, this box is. And, and Luke, go ahead and throw that up. This is what part of the Andromeda galaxy looks like. They spent months taking pictures of the Andromeda galaxy. This picture is so big that if you wanted to see all of it in its original size, you would have to put 600 HD TVs together to get all of it on one, uh, in one shot. This is a zoomed out picture of it, obviously. What we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on this little square here. And this little square actually is too big for what we're going to see next. But this is what all of that looks like when we blow it up. So go ahead and throw it up here. That's just one fraction of a percent of a galaxy 2.2 million light years away from us. Every single one of those dots is a star the same size as our sun. Many of them are bigger than our sun. No wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for. Astronomers estimate that there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. They also estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. If you do the math, that means that there are 100 octillion stars in the known universe. Put that in perspective, that's a 1 followed by 29 zeros. To put that in perspective again, there are about 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. That's a 75 followed by 17 zeros. And my math is correct. That means that there are 13 billion times more stars than there are grains of sand on the earth. The size of creation points to God's incredible, awesome power. I'm reminded of the words in Isaiah. It says this, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. 
This passage in Isaiah reminds us that the most unbelievable part of all those numbers is that God created each and every one of them, and he knows every single detail about every single one of them. Even if we have never seen them before, God knows everything about that star. I'm reminded of the words of Johannes Kepler, one of the founders of modern-day astronomy, when he says, the undevout astronomer is mad. In other words, you have to be crazy to look at pictures like that one of Andromeda and not see that this points to God's power. That God is a great and powerful God. That you don't fall to your knees in worshiping this God. The size of creation points to God's power, but it's not just the size of his creation. It's also the beauty of God's creation that points to his power. Why is it that every single smartphone and computer comes preloaded with pictures of nature for backgrounds? Why is it that there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of pictures right now in the Clay County Fair photo, photography exhibit that are of nature? Why is it that there are hundreds of thousands of people that visit the national parks here in the United States every single year? It's because creation is beautiful. Nature is beautiful. It reminds me of Isaiah as he's talking about creation. He says this, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. God's creation is beautiful. It doesn't matter if you are in the Rockies or if you're in the South Pacific, even if you're here in Iowa getting to watch the sunset. God's creation is stunningly beautiful. And that beauty points to God's power. But it's not just the size of creation and the beauty of creation. It's also the complexity of creation. Creation is astoundingly complex. And that complexity points to God's power again. Just a few examples. If you were to take all the blood vessels in an adult human and you were to spread them end to end, can you guess how long they would be? 60,000 miles in every single adult in this room. If your blood vessels were stretched end to end, that means they could circle the globe two and a half times. 60,000 miles in each and every one of us. Imagine that you were tasked with the job of naming every single species of plants, animal, fungus, every living thing out there on earth. Guess how many species there are, all different from one another? 8.7 million. Biologists estimate that 80% of all species haven't even been discovered yet. God's creation is astoundingly complex. Every single adult in here has, on average, about seven octillion atoms in their body. That's a seven followed by 27 zeros. All of them put into place by God. Creation is astoundingly, infinitely complex. And that complexity points to the power of God. See, not only did God create all of this, but he created it all out of nothing. There is truly no one like God, as Isaiah 
again says, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. When you hear all that, I begin to wonder, what do we do with this? What do we do with all of this about creation? It's been what we've pointed to uh, as we've been looking at this. But it's, it's clear here in verse 1 that, that the argument is that creation is a sign of God's awesome power. It is begging us, imploring us, compelling us to respond to God. The reality is the God that we sing to here this morning is the same God who even now is effortlessly forming a star billions of light years away from here that no one will ever see. God is doing that. He is a God worthy of being praised. He not only forms it, but he knows everything about it. Not only that, but he sustains it. Jesus is talked about in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says this. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God, even now, is sustaining his creation. He's holding it together. He's keeping it running. Every breath, every blink, every ray of light, every heartbeat, all gifts from God who created all things and sustains all things. And because of that, we respond. We can try to respond by uh, the attempting to understand the, the size and the beauty and the complexity of creation. And we might succeed to some small degree, but we will ultimately fail. Because it is too great, too beautiful, and too complex for us to understand. The only logical response for us is to respond with awe. After all, the creator and sustainer of all this invites you to be his child. Invites you into relationship with him. To enjoy him forever. We respond by repenting of the absolute foolishness of a half-hearted devotion to this God. We respond with repentance of any sort of doubt that God does not care about us or is not in charge, even in our darkest moments. The only right answer for us, the only response to the world around us is a response of wonder and awe and gratitude and wholehearted devotion to this beautiful, wonderful, perfect God. Creation truly is a signpost pointing to God's awesome power. And all that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If we continue looking at verse 2, we see that God created everything, but it might not have been in the way that we may think. Let's reread verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Some people will read verse 2 and they'll read a lot into it. And they'll say, well, verse 2 argues that there were, 
was something before God created the heavens and the earth. That there was this pre-existent material that, that God didn't create. That doesn't work in this passage, though, if you look at the, the broader context, and you look at the context of the Bible as a whole, what we see is that God is an artist. And as an artist, God likes to create raw materials, and then he likes to form those like a potter forming clay into what his finished product will be. And so God creates an earth that is formless and void. God creates darkness that hovers over this deep God is a God who creates these waters that are talked about here. And over the next six days, and we're going to look at this next week, we see that God is forming these, shaping them, filling them to be his perfect, good creation. But more on that next week. Let's dive into this verse just briefly, a little bit more. Just want to pull out three terms that are used here uh, that are pretty interesting and can be problematic for us. First one is this phrase, without form and void, or, or formless and void. That's not a, very, not a very flattering description of the earth. Be completely honest, that's not a flattering description of the earth at all. It's the same language that's used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to deserts. Remember, that's where Israel currently is. A place that is uninhabitable. A place that is useless. Not only is the desert uninhabitable and useless, but in ancient Israel, there, there was a tendency to see the desert as a place where God was absent. A place where God could not be found. And so right here at the beginning of verse 2, the question for us, the question for the Israelites thousands of years ago is this. Is God present? Is God really here? Or is he absent? continue and you see this other phrase darkness again darkness isn't the most flattering description of god's creation not only are these raw materials uninhabitable but they are covered in darkness first john tells us that god is light darkness the opposite of light and so again we have to ask is god with his creation is god absent or is he present Another word, waters. It might not sound like a big deal to us, but in ancient Israel, there was this terrifying fear of water. It was a negative symbol. It was a symbol of chaos, a place of danger and of death. And so again, we have to ask, is this a place where God is present? Is God with his creation? Even after what we talked about in verse 1, about the complexity, about the beauty, about the size of creation— Verse 2 asks, is God really here? Is God really with us? Is God's creation really actually good? After all, you can look at the universe. You can look at that picture of Andromeda. And you can see how vast our creation is, our world is, our universe is. And you can begin to feel very lonely. You can begin to feel a lot of despair. Carl Sagan, an astronomer, puts it this way. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, all this is challenged by this point. 
Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. For the naturalist, the person who rejects God for different alternative explanations of origins, despair is the only logical response to the bleak cosmic dark that is out there. We are very alone from this worldview. Everything is formless and void, uninhabitable, waste. They might not recognize it, but they have the exact same viewpoint that is being talked about here in in verse 2. A viewpoint that says God is not with his creation, that we are all alone. And there is no hope. But there's one phrase in verse 2 that shatters this worldview. It's one that I skipped over. It talks about the Spirit of God. It reminds us that God's Spirit hovers over the face of the water. That yes, this may be an uninhabitable waste, but not forever. God is still with his creation. He has been with his creation from the beginning. He will be with his creation until the end of time. He will never leave it. He will never forsake it. In the truest sense, God's presence with his creation reminds us of his love for that very creation. The proper response to the vastness, the size of our space is not despair or hopelessness, but it is trust and overwhelming gratitude to God. To look at creation, to know that we are loved by God, not just in spite of the vastness of space. That we are loved by God, not just in spite of the complexity of creation, but that we are loved by God in spite of our rebellion against him. That God deeply loves us and cares for us. And and really, if we were to sum up this passage, it would be this, that creation is a megaphone. Shouting out the majesty and power and glory and beauty and wonder and love of God. The psalmist says this, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. God has always been with his creation. God always will be with his creation because he deeply cares for it, including us. And so even as we close this morning, we're reminded here, just in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, we're reminded of the incredible grace of God for his creation. See, we mentioned earlier that Jesus is the sustainer of his creation. John 1 tells us that alongside the Father and the Spirit, that Jesus was actively involved in the actual creation Jesus creates, he sustains. When humanity leads creation in a rebellion against God, he dies for that creation. That's the good news, honestly, that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 already is pointing to. It's pointing to this grace. It's a reminder of the ultimate and wonderful grace that God has for us, his people. 
As I stated earlier, the, the only way for us to respond properly is to respond in worship. It's the only logical response to the creation that we see around us is to respond in worship. For some of us, that means responding to the free gift of salvation as an act of worship. For others of us, that means maybe refocusing our lives on him, for he is worthy of praise. For others of us, that might mean that we just take some time to meditate on the greatness of God, the beauty of God, the complexity of God in his creation. You might be saying, well, Jordan, uh, all that stuff that you you say is great. I want to respond in worship, but, but it's just difficult. All that you mentioned might be cool, pretty neat, but it's kind of stale. I want to just read you this quote. One of the tragedies of growing up is that we get used to things. There is an immense loss when we get used to the redness of the rising sun and the roundness of the moon, the whiteness of the snow, the wetness of rain, the blueness of sky, the buzzing of bumblebees, the invisibility of the wind, the weirdness of noses and ears, the numbers of grains of sand on a thousand beaches, the never crash, the never ceasing crash, crash, crash of countless waves, 10 million kingly clad flowers flourishing and withering where no one sees but God. I invite you to seek a freshness of vision, to look as though it were the first time, not at the empty product of accumulated millennia of evolutionary aimless accidents but at the personal handiwork of an infinitely strong, infinitely powerful, creative, exuberant artist who made the earth and the sea and everything in them. If you want a tangible way to respond in worship today, sometime this week, carve out some time. It doesn't matter if it's two minutes or two hours. Just go outside Look up at the stars. Watch the sun rise. Go for a walk in the forest. And remember, the God who created all of those, the God who sustains all these things, loves you and cares for you. And wants you to be his child. We truly worship a great, wonderful, powerful God. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And even as we look at your creation, we are reminded of that. We're reminded of your greatness, of your power. And we rejoice that you have not abandoned us. That you stay with us. Because you love your creation deeply. God, forgive us for a half-hearted devotion to you. 
Help us to look at creation and to respond with worship. To the glory of the one who created us and everything else. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.